Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 292nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. I can remember thinking about asylums all the way back to when I was a kid, and a lot of the images that I think we have early on as children are what we see in cartoons. And there's always this crazy person wrapped up in a straitjacket, and they're getting thrown into this building. And as you get older, you start seeing horror movies or hearing urban legends about the escaped lunatic wandering around killing people. So there's always been a lot of fear when it comes to asylums. On this episode, I'm going to be looking at an asylum that's in Victoria, Australia. This is considered to be one of the most haunted places in all of Australia. This is the Airedale Asylum. And I'm not surprised that there are haunted experiences connected to this complex because nearly 13,000 people died here. And even before there was an asylum here, there was a jail here. And that jail would later become a place for the criminally insane to be kept. So I'm looking forward to bringing you the history and the hauntings of this location. Before we get into that, I want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Rachel, Rose, Nick, Julie, Elijah, Dylan Sadie, Jennifer, Cassie with an I, and this last name I believe is Welsh. I'm not exactly sure how to say it. It's either Sinead or Sinead. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. Moonshining had been going on in America from the time of the Revolutionary War. During Prohibition, the effort to bootleg moonshine stepped up. Most moonshine operations took place in remote wooded areas where they were easier to conceal. This didn't keep law enforcement from finding the illegal distilleries, and when they did, the operators would usually take off running. Obviously, it's easy to track a human with their shoe prints. Moonshiners devised an unusual way to camouflage their tracks. They made cow shoes. These were basically a strip of metal that had a wooden block on the back and the front that had been carved to look like the hoof of a cow. This contraption was then strapped onto a real shoe. Thus, when a moonshiner ran away, he left behind hoof prints. 
the police didn't know if they were following a cow or a human. These cow shoes were worn all the time because they also didn't want authorities to see shoe prints in the woods where humans shouldn't be and suspect that an operation was going on. Once the newspapers reported about the cow shoes, they became less effective. But the idea that moonshiners devised these cow shoes and that they really did work certainly is odd. We pride ourselves on being commercial-free. If you would like to support the show, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 14th, in 1849, the first photograph of a United States president was taken by photographer Matthew Brady. That president was James Polk. Brady was one of the earliest photographers in America and is considered the father of photojournalism. He photographed 18 of the 19 presidents, from John Quincy Adams to William McKinley, and this included many photos of Abraham Lincoln. He photographed other famous people like Daniel Webster and Edgar Allan Poe as well. He became best known during the Civil War when he took many battlefield photographs and made use of a mobile studio and darkroom while in the field. He hired many assistants and many of the photos attributed to him were taken by these men. A lack of documentation has made it hard for historians to know whom to attribute photos to and when and where pictures were taken. A war-weary America lost interest in the Civil War photos by the end of the conflict, and Brady eventually lost all his money because he'd self-funded much of his Civil War work and he died in debt. It's sad to think that someone who gave so much photographic history of this early time, including photos of President Lincoln that would be used to create the $5 bill and Lincoln penny, would die penniless in a charity hospital. Gold brought people to the city of Ararat, but what it would be known for is its asylums. The Airedale Asylum would be home for the mentally ill for over a century and would feature conditions and treatments similar to other asylums around the world, most of which were not good. This misunderstanding and mistreatment of the mentally ill lends itself to the negative energy that sometimes feeds paranormal activity. The fact that the criminally insane were kept in J-Ward only heightens that energy. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of the Airedale Asylum. Ararat is a city in southwest Victoria, Australia, about 120 miles west of Melbourne. You hear that name, and I bet the first thing that comes to mind is Mount Ararat, right? That's the only other time I've ever heard that name. This is a mountain that's found in the Bible, and this is where Noah's Ark is said to have landed after the Great Flood. Well, that's where Ararat gets its name from, from Mount Ararat. The Tijapurong indigenous Australian people were here first. Thomas Mitchell was the first to survey the area in 1836, and Horatio Wills passed through in 1841 and wrote in a diary about his group resting like the Ark near a hill, which he named Mount Ararat. So it was basically Horatio Wills who came up with the name. A post office was established in 1856, 
And then gold was discovered the following year, and that was all it took for Ararat to become a boom town. Everybody was coming because they thought they were going to get some gold. And the town would continue to grow until the turn of the 20th century. And then, of course, as we know, eventually those precious metals run out. And when they do, the people leave. It wouldn't be until May 24th, 1950, that Ararat would be proclaimed a city. The town remains small to this day. But there is a complex that remains as a reminder to something else that Ararat came to be known for more than just the gold rush. This was a place for the mentally ill. The Aradell Mental Hospital opened in 1865, and the Ararat County Jail, that later became J. Ward, a lunatic asylum for the criminally insane, was opened in 1887. They not only harbor a troubling history, but the spirits from the past are said to have remained. The asylum in Ararat was designed by G.W. Vivian and J.J. Clark, and this was done in a Victorian Italianate style, and it had an E-plan barracks format. So rather than some of the other ones that I've talked about on previous episodes that had more of a wagon wheel feel to it, like a central area and then all these spokes going off into these other buildings with tunnels and such, this building looked like a capital E if you were to look on it from up above. And it was modeled after an asylum that could be found in Colney Hatch, England. The design incorporated linking bridges and an arcade on an arched gateway with towers and unique detailing of the central block. There were wings on each end that were two-storied and split by gender. So on one side you had the women, the other side you had the men. The ward wings were surrounded by courtyards lined with iron-columned verandas. Another unique feature of asylums like Ararat were something called haha walls. These walls were meant to give the illusion that no one was imprisoned, while the reality of the construction was that they were meant to prevent escape. So it looks like these people aren't really trapped in there, but they actually are. How do you accomplish that? What they did is they built a trench. One side of the wall was vertical and faced with stone or bricks, and then the other side was sloped and turfed. So what would happen is from the outside, you'd look and you'd see this sloped up and and turfed side. So it wouldn't look like the wall was very high. You'd be like, oh, that's only, you know, maybe a four foot wall. Well, the reality is on the other side, it would be all the way down to the ground and you would see that it was more like a 10 foot wall. So there really was no way for these people to get out. The material used for the buildings was oversized bricks made from cement that was stuccoed and the roofs were slate. The builders were O'Grady, Glynn, and O'Callaghan, and inmate labor was not used, as was the case with many other asylums. The asylum initially was known as Ararat Asylum before it became Aradale. I'm going to call it Aradale, as that is what it is known as today. Like most other asylums we've covered, Aradale was a city unto itself. So they would say the whole city of Ararat could go away. There could be nobody there, and Aradale would be self-sustaining. They did not need the city. They had gardens and vineyards, an orchard, a piggery, and other livestock were kept here. There were about 63 buildings in the complex and 500 employees. There was a billiard room, a school, a large multi-purpose hall, library, and 2,100 feet of verandas for patients to get air. A landscape architect named Hugh Lincolner had laid out the grounds of Alexandra Park, so he was chosen to lay out the grounds of Airedale in 1913. The most infamous ward at the asylum was J. Ward. J. Ward was originally the Ararat County Jail, which had been built from 1859 to 1861 and was made from bluestone. The prison maxed out at around 40 prisoners and executions were conducted. The first execution was on August 15, 1870, and this was for Andrew Veer, who was hanged for the murder of Amos Cheel. 
The second execution was on September 25, 1883, when Robert Francis Burns was hanged for the murder of Michael Quinlivan. The third and final execution was on June 6, 1884, and Henry Morgan was hanged for the murder of Margaret Nolan. By 1887, this area of Australia needed some place for the criminally insane, and so J. Ward was converted to a maximum security psychiatric ward for the criminally insane. After the facility was decommissioned in the early 1990s, patients were transferred to community living and to other facilities, and eventually the last remaining ward, the Ararat Forensic Psychiatric Center, was closed in December of 1993. After the official closing, it still was used to house female prisoners during the building renovation of Dame Phyllis Frost Center. The women left in 2001. Then the Victorian government provided $7.4 million to Melbourne Polytechnic so they would set up a campus. As part of this campus, 30 hectares of vineyard and 10 hectares of olive grove were planted in 2002. A winery and olive press was later added, and this has become a world-class wine and hospitality training facility. J. Ward is today a museum where tours are offered and visitors can see artifacts and photos, and many of those tours include paranormal investigations as well. Prisoners had done artwork on the outside walls, and this can still be seen today. So this is all nice about the buildings, but what of the people? As we know, mental illness was treated quite differently than today, not only method-wise, but also socially, and it really has taken us a long time to get to where we are today. These places where they were housed were called, as I said earlier, lunatic asylums because people were labeled as lunatics, and they also labeled them as idiots and imbeciles. So it wasn't just that you were crazy, you were thought to be really stupid too. I know plenty of people who have some form of mental illness that they're dealing with, and they're highly intelligent people. The reason why they use the term lunatic was Luna was Latin for the moon, and people believed that the moon made some people go mad. So the definition was people affected with periodic insanity dependent on the changes of the moon, or they were called moonstruck, which is lunaticus in Latin. Thus we get lunatic, which obviously today is considered derogatory towards someone with mental illness. Now, I will say that when there's a full moon, some people do seem to act a little bit more erratic. I don't know that it necessarily has anything to do with the moon, but since that seems to control the tides and such, maybe it does have a little bit of an effect on human beings. Treatment was harsh in some cases, and there are those who claim that 13,000 people passed away in the 130 years of operation of Aridale. A lot of people passed through those doors, and the reason why is it only took two signatures to get you committed. But if you wanted to get out, to get released, you needed to have eight signatures. Can you imagine two to get you in, eight to get you out? And we've talked about this so many times. The other thing that would make an asylum a terrifying place to be is not only the harsh treatment that would be inside there, but a great portion of the people who were there didn't really belong there. Perhaps you were a husband having an affair. It'd be an easy way to get rid of your wife, just have her committed. Perhaps you were a child. Maybe you were mentally handicapped in some way. Your parents didn't want to take care of you anymore. They would just send you off to the asylum where they could raise you there. Maybe you're just somebody who suffers from a little bit of depression. Should you really be in a place with somebody who's killed someone because they lost their mind? So that's what you had going on here. And obviously, it would have been very hard and difficult to get yourself out. Imagine that you'd have to find eight doctors who would sign for you. 
And the common treatments that they used back in the day, we've discussed those many times as well, just horrible, from cold baths to electroshock therapy, imprisonment and mechanical contraptions like straitjackets, throwing you into a padded cell, other kinds of inhumane treatment, and then, of course, the most vile of all, the lobotomy. All of these were done here as well. Now, they wanted to make people feel kind of peaceful while they were there. So with the landscaping, they threw in some gardens and some fountains to give you this sense of peace. But I'm telling you, if I'm in a room where somebody is whacking their head against a wall or something of that nature, I'm not going to get a lot of peace from sitting outside and looking at a fountain, especially if I'm in somewhere I'm not supposed to be. And there's really no way for me to get out. It's really your own personal hell. And for a lot of people, I can imagine if you spent any amount of time in one of these places, if you weren't crazy before you went in, you probably were when you wanted to come out. Jay Ward's former pastor was Gordon Moves, and he wrote in the 1960s, On my first day in Ararat, I was given a massive iron key to open the thick, heavy iron and wood doors to the maximum security division to enable me to visit cell to cell the psychotic prisoners. Jay Ward was built last century of heavy blocks of blue granite with high walls topped with rolls of barbed wire. Every gate and window was barred with steel bars one and a half inches thick. The prisoners were considered the most dangerous in the country, and the people in the community looked up to the top of the hill where the psychiatric prison stood like a Greek castle, fearful of the night when the sirens might go announcing a mass escape when they would all be murdered in their beds. There was no love for those prisoners in Ararat, the prisoners I met as I went from cell to cell or stopped and talked to me in the exercise yard were a strange mixture. They were the insane murderers of Victoria marked never to be released or to be held at the governor's pleasure. There was a man who constantly barked like a dog and another man who would ask you frequently if you'd ever sawn a man up into small pieces with a wood saw as he had. And this is when he's visiting in the 1960s. You can imagine earlier in the 1900s, when you'd be looking at some of the conditions that would go with some of these people, it's just a heinous place. Let's look at some of the prisoners that once called the facility home. Mark Chopper Reed died of cancer at the age of 58 in 2013. He'd been a figure in the Melbourne underworld and committed various crimes ranging from armed robbery to kidnapping to murder. He'd been doing time in Pentridge Prison in 1978 when he arranged for a fellow inmate to cut off both his ears. And this is where they say his nickname Chopper comes from. And if you look at a picture of him, he does look rather weird. This got him transferred to J Ward, but he only stayed there for a few months before being transferred back to Pentridge. Chopper wrote of his time at J Ward, a terrible place. There was a shit bucket in the middle of the room. People slept on the concrete floor. Mill times were like the feeding of animals. Some people couldn't have their straitjackets removed. They were that mad. So people still wearing their straight jackets would just dunk their heads into the bowls of food. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Charles Fossard was a French immigrant who spent the longest time in the facility of any other patient. He was brought to J. Ward in 1903 when he was only 21, after he killed a man and was judged insane. He remained there until he died at age 92 in 1974. So he was there from the age of 21 to 92. Can you imagine being in an asylum for that long? And J. Ward again was for the criminally insane. Bill Wallace was the oldest inmate ever at J. Ward. He was suspected of murdering a man in 1926. And the reason he killed the guy is because he wouldn't stop smoking in a cafe when Wallace asked him to. So he waited outside and shot the guy. There were no witnesses, but a police officer heard the shot and ran to the scene. Two doctors declared Wallace unfit to plead when he wouldn't talk. Wallace was 43 years old when he entered J. Ward, and he was there until he died in 1989 at the age of 107. You probably are asking why they would keep somebody there until that age. People petitioned for him to be released when he reached 100, but Wallace didn't want to leave. This was his home. His chess set that the prison had given him on his 100th birthday is on display in the museum. And the irony of the story about the crime that got him here, shooting a man who wouldn't stop smoking when he asked him to, Bill Wallace was a heavy smoker and would smoke at least a pack a day while he was in prison. Gary David, also known as Gary Webb, was an Australian criminal who'd had a variety of personality disorders. His mother was an alcoholic and his father was abusive, a pedophile, and a criminal who spent most of his time locked up. This caused David to grow up in a number of orphanages, and his life of crime began at the age of 11. He was eventually diagnosed with antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic personality disorders. The definition of insane has a picture of him next to it. At least that's what I think. He not only enjoyed hurting others, he was especially abusive to himself, mutilating his ears, nipples, and genitals. He would swallow razor blades, hammer nails into his feet, and drink corrosive chemicals. In 1982, he attempted to rob a pizza joint and ended up sentenced to 14 years in prison for the attempted murder of three people, one of whom was an officer. While in jail, he wrote graphic fantasies of massacres, assassinations, and other disturbing scenarios. In January 1990, David was declared mentally ill, but the Mental Health Act of 1986 gave David the right to appeal, and he was later found to not be insane. The government of Victoria was not about to let David out into society, though, so they passed the Community Protection Act of 1990. Yes, you heard that right. The government passed a law specifically to keep this guy in jail. That's how dangerous they felt he was. He was kept locked up and committed suicide in 1993 by swallowing razor blades. He died when he was 38. He'd spent 33 of those years in institutions because he'd been moved around from orphanages to boys' homes to finally here, the asylum. A paper called The Age wrote on June 20th, 1993, on a wall at J. Ward, the Dick and Ilian former prison for the criminally insane at Ararat is a painting rendered in angry slashes of black and white. A bearded and long-haired figure, gaunt and furious, more than two meters tall and dressed in colonial convict garb, lunges through a wall of blackness. He's burst his chains, and in his right fist he wields what looks like a straight razor. Behind him are glimpses of sky and trees that seem to ask whether the figure is escaping to or from freedom. It is an ominous and disturbing work that seems to say much about the man who created it, Victoria's most notorious prisoner, Gary David. And as I searched through newspaper archives, I found this article on Tuesday, December 18th, 1990 in The Age. 
Police were called to J Ward of Ararat's Aradale Psychiatric Hospital yesterday afternoon when Gary Webb barricaded himself in his cell. Police said Webb had threatened to push a pen into his eye. After a doctor talked to him, the door was opened. Police moved Webb to an isolation room. So this is just some of the things that Gary David Webb was doing. Someone going by the username Morbid Curiosity wrote in 2009 on the AustralianParanormal.com website, My husband was grabbed on the leg in J. Ward's old bluestone cell block in Gary David Webb's old cell. The next day he had five bruises in that same spot where he was grabbed, one thumb and four fingers. Fascinating place. Now, David didn't die here, but is some essence of his spirit here? People also claim to have heard a voice shout, Get out! from Gary David Webb's old cell. Now, I've mentioned a lot of men here, but J. Ward wasn't just a facility for men. Women and children were here, too. And there's even a family cell that can be seen on the tour. Lorna Banfield and Roberta A. Daly meticulously searched through old newspaper archives to get to the heart of the stories of women who spent time here. I wanted to share some of their stories. From previous episodes featuring old jails and specifically those sent to the penal colonies in Australia, a number of people were sent away for very petty crimes or things we might not even really consider crimes today. You know, people stealing bread and such. Ellen Belser and her children were charged and convicted after breaking into a store and stealing. The official charge was vagrancy, and in 1863, they were sent to the Ararat jail to serve a two-month sentence. The newspaper reported, The unfortunate woman is paralyzed and unable to do anything for the support of herself or family. We understand an effort is being made to get the woman and her children into a Melbourne benevolent home. The court finally decided to send her to a Melbourne home. So thankfully, herself and her children got out of the jail. Ellen Jenkins was jailed simply for having no visible means of support. She was sentenced to three months and with no one to care for her children, the two were sent with her. After she got out, she was sent back to jail for drunkenness. This time, at least, her kids were sent off to an industrial school. Janet Mary Ann Pett was charged with drunkenness and sent off to the Ararat jail for a few days, which was not unusual for her. She had been here before. This time would last for eight days in 1863. Two glasses of colonial ale got to Helen Jane Vaughn, and as a Sergeant Dillon testified, he heard her, quote, utter one of the most disgusting tirades of obscenity it was ever his lot to listen to, end quote. She was sentenced to a month at the jail. Unfortunately, she would later murder her husband in a drunken fight, and she was back at the jail. I just wanted to mention these as a few examples of what women were jailed for, and to show you the fact that some of their children were actually sent off with them, too. More troubling were women like an inmate only known as McLeod. Physicians described her as a wretched creature, painfully vacant and idiotic, and that there was no hope for her. She was said to eat dirt and suffer from hallucinations, and this deemed her a dangerous lunatic. You've got to think, what kind of a treatment do you give to somebody who you just consider as someone who's completely hopeless? Very, very sad that somebody would be deemed that way. You can imagine how many women had some kind of postpartum depression and were considered some kind of a dangerous, crazy person because of that. Very sad, the treatment that we had here and the way that these people were thought of. You can only imagine that the treatment's not going to be very good. The second governor here was John Gray, and his wife Christina was put in charge of the women. The jail would only have four governors in its 26 years, and most of the punishment was hard labor for both men and women. When the jail became J-Ward, women were still imprisoned here with the men. With stories of executions and around 13,000 people dying at the asylum, 
It's no wonder that this location is considered to be so haunted. The mortality rate was four to five inmates a week. If a contagious disease like TB broke out, that rate skyrocketed. Peter Dunn was a caretaker here. He said that typhoid ripped through at one time after patients from the upper levels would throw their feces into the downspouts and the water that was running down from rain. And you can imagine what typhoid would do in a close, compact place like this. Add in that daily life was a mix of the mundane and the horrific, and this place was somewhere no one wanted to go. The Victorian asylums were declared the worst in the British Empire. Add in that an executing jail was once here and that the criminally insane were kept here, and these dark corridors clearly lend themselves to ghost stories. There are claims of people feeling cold hands reaching out and touching them as if a spirit's asking for help in much the same way this person probably did ask for help when they were alive. And there's no doubt that there would be disembodied screams heard throughout the asylum. Either from those who had just gone out of their minds from being locked up here and were screaming in frustration, the screams of pain from treatments that were being used. There would be a number of reasons for screams. I mentioned earlier that there were four governors of the jail. The final one was a man named George Fidemont. I couldn't find out much about him personally, but apparently he was giving a group a tour of the jail in 1886 And as he neared the bottom of a flight of stairs, he suffered a widowmaker and died right there. This was near the old underground kitchen, and to this day, visitors and guides hear footsteps up and down those stairs when no one is on the stairs. They'll run to see who's there. They'll see nothing. A young spirit boy named Stuart is also encountered here. A former cook occasionally joins him. No one is sure if Stuart had been a patient or a worker, so they're not sure why he's here. So when you're near the old underground kitchen at Airedale, you have the possibility of interacting with three spirits, it would appear. Peter Dunn, that caretaker I mentioned earlier, claims that he's had no experiences at any point when he was working there. He said people would tell him about having strange sensations, but he thinks they just make for good stories. So apparently he didn't believe anything that he was told. But is there something unexplained going on here? It's enough that at least one tour guide who was a skeptic is now a true believer. He's seen things, felt things, and even smelled things that he could not explain. Another guide describes the building as very dark, and he claims that on a good night, he'll get around 40 screams from visitors. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I rarely am on a ghost tour with somebody who screams or makes some kind of a scared noise. To have 40 of them in one tour... That's a lot. Is it just the power of suggestion making these people think that they're seeing things or scaring them? Or are they really having experiences? One group of paranormal investigators had been to Airedale eight times to investigate. On the last visit, one of the members fell to the ground, flailing around and yelling, you bastard, get off me. When they pulled his shirt down, they found a bite mark on the back of his neck. They took him to an area with better light and looked again, and the bite mark was gone. That's just weird. We've heard plenty of stories of bite marks or scratches appearing from something unseen. 
but I have never heard of when you go to look at it a little bit closer that it's then gone. How does that happen? How does it just disappear? The covered bridge leading into the men's ward was high enough that people could jump for a final escape from their life in Arendelle, and many did. Women get a lot of attention in the men's ward. So if you are a female investigating in there or on a tour, just watch yourself. Nurse Carrie was a mean nurse, and for some reason her spirit has stayed on here at Arendelle. I didn't hear any stories of her dying there, but apparently she spent enough time there and liked it enough that she wanted to return in death. Visitors claim to see her full-bodied apparition giving them an icy stare. Shadow figures are seen darting around corners and passing the superintendent's office might leave you with a bitter taste in your mouth. A former superintendent killed himself with poison in the form of prusic acid, which is basically hydrogen cyanide. The ghost of an older patient named Old Margaret is said to have returned to the building where she spent most of her life after she died. She's said to be one of the saddest ghosts in the building, and she's one of the most well-known. One of the crazier stories to come out of J-Ward is the story of an inmate who was murdered and dismembered in the governor's bathroom. It is for this reason that people believe a demonic force has taken up residence in that bathroom. The feeling inside is oppressive, and visitors claim the evil is palpable. Ghost tours are offered, some of which are several hours, and offer investigation as part of the package. With a place that claims to have had more deaths than nearly all other buildings on the continent of Australia, it's no wonder that this asylum is claimed as one of the most haunted places in the world. Is the Aridale Asylum haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, for those of you who are down there in the Melbourne area and Victoria, would love to hear if you have visited this location. And if you haven't, maybe you should make plans to do that. I would love to hear about your experiences and what kinds of things you capture as evidence. Shout out to all of you who listen on YouTube. I greatly appreciate you guys listening over there. I could not believe the numbers I am getting over there. It's just been amazing. I have over 220,000 views of the videos over there, and most of them are just audio. My podcast host company just throws the audio up there with a cover photo, but there will be more material for you guys to check out over on YouTube. So please subscribe to the History Ghost Bump channel on YouTube. I'm going to start putting out some unlisted videos that I'd had up there for people who were executive producers of the show. And now that I've changed the tiers and made it so that they're getting bonus audio content, I'm going to start making those videos available for the public. And there's about, I think, 18 of them. I put the first one up featuring Fort Barrancas. I want to encourage you guys to check out the historyghostbump.com website. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And I did get an email from Natasha. She says, hello, I just wanted to give you some backstories on the events that have happened to me. The first time I had something particularly spooky happen was about a month after one of my clients in my first group homes passed away. The time I was 19 and not focused on anything supernatural. However, this incident quickly made me into a believer. And isn't that how it happens for all of us? Everyone I've told it to has said I've imagined it, and it made me feel like I was crazy, so I stopped telling people about my experiences. 
Well, that's the great thing about the Spooktacular crew. You can come on in and tell us about your experiences, and we're not going to think you're crazy. This night, I'd been sitting at the kitchen table with my coworker, and it was the first time I'd brought up my client since he'd passed away the previous month. I'd gotten up to go to the bathroom, which was just down the hall by the bedrooms. At the end of the hall was the helium balloon we'd gotten for this client's birthday before he'd entered the hospital. It had been in his room. I thought nothing of it, though, because we kept his door open for the other guy sleeping in there. So I finished my business and I opened the door, which swung into the bathroom. I noticed that the balloon was floating down the hall towards me about two to three inches off the ground in a perfectly straight line. I yelled for my coworker and she came to the end of the hall and became freaked out, telling me to stop whatever I was doing. I clearly was not touching the balloon as I was holding onto the door frame. The balloon proceeded to lift up as it got to me, continuing in a straight line. Then it settled back to about two inches off the ground, heading down the hall. We watched the balloon turn around every open door or piece of furniture as it made its way to our manager's office, where this client loved to hang out with staff. We were too freaked out, so we locked it in the office the rest of the night until about 6 a.m. when I realized I had to go in there to send a fax. When I opened the door, the balloon was floating onto the keyboard. I sent my fax and quickly left. However, I was soon overcome with that feeling of being watched. Looking around, I saw no one and my coworker was in the back of the house getting clients up for the day. The feeling, however, would not go away. On a whim, I looked up, and to my horror, the balloon was resting at the top of the open cabinet door I was under and was tilted, as if it was peering down on me. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Before I get into a couple other stories she's going to tell here, I don't know how many of you have seen that video that went viral, I think, a couple years ago, but it's a mother who's at a funeral for her child. And there was a balloon, I think it was up by the coffin, and you watch as this balloon floats away from the coffin and comes all the way over to the mother and just stops right in front of her. And you can explain some of these weird balloon things that happen as a draft, maybe there was an open window, the vents with the heating or the air conditioning, something. But when you watch a balloon make a specific movement at a certain level and then it stops right in front of the mother... It's very hard to doubt that that isn't something paranormal going on. The second time I had something happen was actually the next time I spoke this client's name about a week later. I was in the kitchen at work with a different coworker getting dinner ready when he was brought up again. This time, a spice jar flew out of the cabinet and into the middle of the kitchen floor. Trying to be practical, we checked the cabinet for the placement, but found that as it had been on the bottom shelving, there was no way it could have ended up six feet away if it had simply fallen. Needless to say, I quit speaking his name after that because he didn't like you mentioning him. Another incident happened to me when I was working at a nursing home. A few days before, my first client there died. I was downstairs with a newer staff member in the common area, and it was about 2 a.m. when we heard this terrible screaming. Thinking something was wrong, we quickly checked on the residents on the floor. There were only seven, and they were all sound asleep. As we went back, my coworker mentioned that she thought it sounded exactly like the lady who died. We brought it up to the next shift in passing, and they just said we were hearing things. However, a few days later, they came to me and said they'd heard the screaming too and couldn't find the source. The last incident I had there was after this particularly mean old man died. He had a very nasty temper and spent his days screaming at us as we tried to take care of him. He eventually passed away. A sweet old lady down the hall from him had slowly been declining in health and was now bedbound. I refused to go down this hall alone as I didn't like the feeling of it lately, and as my coworker and I were going to check on this lady, the atmosphere of the hall became heavier and heavier as we got near her door. 
I'd never had an experience like this and the feeling weighed down on me and I began to feel lightheaded and nauseous. However, we had to do our check, so we powered through it. The feeling continued into her room and when in there, we began hearing a clanging in her bathroom. Looking in there, we found nothing moving or anything that could produce the noise we were hearing. We hurried on taking care of her as we were thoroughly creeped out. Being in the field as long as we've been, you learn that some things joked about are true, such as the full moon bringing out the crazies. In this case, it didn't escape our attention that the whole time we were changing this lady, as the clanging and the heaviness weighed in on us, that she just happened to spend the entire time staring at one spot above my shoulder as though she was seeing someone we could not. And just a little bit of synchronicity there, talking about the full moon bringing out the crazies goes perfectly with this episode. So I just want to thank Natasha for sharing those with us. Just want to remind everybody that this podcast is entirely listener supported and that you can get bonus content for as little as a buck a month. You can get bonus episodes for as little as $2 a month. And last week I put up a bonus cast that was for anybody who was giving at the $3 and above level all about haunted Antarctica. Apparently ghosts like the cold. You can sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash history ghost bump, or you can also sign up at PayPal. Have some Apple podcast reviews to share. First up, we have the Midwest Witches. HGB stands out five stars. History Ghost Bump stands out among other podcasts of its kind because of the community the show is built. The content is interesting, well-researched and entertaining, but the experience doesn't end when the episode does. You'll have to listen to find out more. For a free podcast, the quality is top-notch, and it's easy to tell the show's host puts her heart and soul into this podcast. If you like history and hauntings, this podcast is a wonderful blend of the two. Thank you for that. Lily Lemon. Hi, Diane. Love your show. Five stars. Thanks for feeding my craving for haunted history. Me and my son love listening to your show. I have a suggestion for a show from my hometown of Woodland, California. It's the Woodland Opera House, and it has a lot of history. I'd love to hear what you could dig up and say what's up to Mort for us. Leon Ryder. Well, I will do that. Mort, did you hear that? Well, hello, Leah. Ryder, what up, little man? Sexy Runner, a perfect blend of history and hauntings, five stars. Diane does a great job of covering history and hauntings all over the world. There's no other podcast out there with a better connection to its listeners. The Spectacular Crew on Facebook is very interactive and fun. If you like this podcast, be sure to check out the Death Box podcast, too. Lastly, it may be beneficial to start with some newer episodes to get a feel for this podcast as the older ones have lower quality audio but are still great episodes. Keep them coming. That's what I always tell everybody. Listen to the most recent episode and then go back through the archive, work your way up. You'll see how much better it gets. And also you want to keep abreast of any current things that we have coming up if you would like to join us for meetups and such. And then since we touched on an Australian location here, it's only fitting that we have an Australian review. This is Val82CNS. Always engaging five stars. I've been a proud listener for well over a year. Topics are truly fascinating and there's so much research behind each episode. I love the perfect blend of history and paranormal. And the host Diane is such a pleasure to listen to. I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, thank you. And I hope you enjoyed this episode featuring a place there in Australia. Thank you for those reviews. If you haven't written one for the show, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you haven't joined us in the Spooktacular crew, please come on over on Facebook. We'd love to hang with you want to thank you all for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome back into the cemetery, Preston AA. You'll be getting a niche wall. Thanks for joining us again. And Alan Balamo. 
Thank you for upping your donation. You'll be moving into a garden tomb, and in a couple of months, you'll be getting your HGB logo mug, too. I hear that everything's better from that mug. All right, Mort, it's time for some more of your eulogies. Take it away. Eulogies by Mort. Margarita Magalon shared her name with a tasty drink. Unfortunately, her life was over in a blink. She helped to bring you stuff to feed your fears. As she supported Hysterigo's bump for two years. Teresa Roland hailed from the West Coast. She enjoyed stories that featured a ghost. She helped get victims their virtual gifts. Hope she doesn't give any hitchhiking ghosts lifts. This next eulogy is for Stacy May. She has come here to the cemetery to stay. Her home state had whales and was evergreen. I wonder if ghost whales have bailing. Jessica Peterson came from the same state as a king. Whose stories great fear to us would bring. That place would be the state of Maine. But now Jessica lives on another plane. John Venezia was from Diane's old stomping ground. He enjoyed venturing into a paranormal playground. He was a really fun chap. But now he is in for a long dirt nap. Bella Cena was a big dog lover. She also liked and seen things that hover. She had lived in the Centennial State. A place where ghost hunters can use pot for bait. Dina Marie was an amazing podcast host. She covered twisted tales with an occasional ghost. She dug horror and could curse a blue streak. But inside she was really a sweet geek. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.